You may find it helpful as we go through this fantastic passage to have it open on page 1001 as we go through and uh, to keep available the light blue outline of the sermon. I have to say, as as a Cambridge College oarsman, how much delight it gave me to say that. Take the light blue piece of paper. (laughs) I wonder if you were amongst the five and a half million people who watched the final episode of Le Carre's The Night Manager on BBC One last night, last week, sorry. And as the tension mounted, were you one of those described by the Daily Mirror as having palpitations? I trust not. But apart from the fact it was quite different from the book, I wonder how you reacted to the final unexpected denouement. Like the other gospel writers, Matthew constructed his gospel with great care. There is a plot. In our passage this this morning, we have Matthew's triumphant climax to the whole of his gospel. And you might have noticed that this is the only time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus ever appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. I'm not saying he didn't appear at other times. I'm saying Matthew only records this one. And that means, amongst other things, that to him it must have been extremely significant. It's on a mountain in Galilee, and Matthew has reserved the punchline of his whole gospel to this very last paragraph. The impact of this last scene on those 11 disciples is literally, and I don't often use this word, awesome. They weren't expecting it, and the implications were mind-boggling. You see, his gospel has majored on the theme of Jesus, the promised Messiah, who has come to bring in the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 16. The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Even the word mountain is heavy with meaning. It's a place of grandeur, of solitude, of awe. And all through the Old Testament, there are stories of people meeting God on mountains and their lives being changed as a result. And in Matthew's own gospel, the summit of, or the pivotal point of the whole gospel is when we see Jesus on a mountain with his, 12, with his three disciples, the special three, where he was transfigured and the veil was pulled apart and briefly his glory was revealed. And so here Jesus is chosen on a mountain to appear to his disciples in all his risen glory. And when he did appear and they saw him, there was only one reaction possible. Matthew writes, when they saw him, they worshipped. 
Matthew only once had said that before, and that was in a boat when their response was, truly you are the Son of God. But somehow, this one is different. This is Jesus who has risen to a new and mysterious dimension. They are in a presence they have not experienced before. Matthew in verse 19, sorry, it says 18 on your blue, light blue paper. Verse 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a moment of truth for the disciples. What else can they do but worship? They are recognizing for the first time the Jesus they have lived with day and night for the last three years, and they have realized that he is none other, not just than the Messiah, but the King of the universe. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Has been given, it's a completed task, which is finished. Jesus Jesus is taking on sin and death and all the powers of evil and rising victorious means that the new age... The new kingdom he promised has been established. If this is true, and he is who he claims to be, this must be the turning point of all history, without exaggeration. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He is seen to be that. And that's why this is a Jesus they have never experienced before. No wonder they worshipped. Well, most of them did. It says, some doubted. Although they were just only just beginning to realize what was happening and who Jesus was, already the implications were beginning to dawn. If this risen Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, what does that mean for each one of them? Their life can never be the same again. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he can't be Lord at all. Total obedience, total commitment is required. We can understand why they doubted. But let me reassure you that doubt is not the opposite of certainty. The word here used for doubted is a Greek word which literally means to be in two places at once. You know the feeling? So do I. If you turn over your sermon outline, you'll find on the back the messages, translations, amplification of what it is to doubt here. It says, Meanwhile, the eleven disciples were on their way to Galilee, headed for the mountain Jesus had set for their reunion. The moment they saw him, they worshipped him. This is it. Some, though, held back, not sure about worship, about risking themselves totally. Now, that's a paraphrase, but I believe it to be an accurate paraphrase of what Jesus was actually saying. And the doubting was perhaps because they were remembering some of the things that Jesus had told them. Things like, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
you cannot serve God and mammon. He who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. He to whom much is given, of him shall much be required. Pretty uncomfortable words of Jesus. They were shattered by what he'd said. And as C.S. Lewis put it, when the children met a similar situation in one of his Narnia stories, it was the time when history turned a corner and it took a while to get used to the new view. No wonder they were not yet sure. We must forgive them for that. While they were still reeling, Jesus upped the stakes. He said, verse 19, Therefore, go. During Holy Week and Easter, especially Good Friday, some of you told me how wonderful the sense of worship was as together we journeyed with Jesus on the, uh, to the cross. I sensed it too. It would have been lovely to linger in that wonderful sense of God's presence, overwhelming love which he showed to us on the cross and the love which um, resulted in his offering to, uh, to give us his friendship, his salvation, his freedom forever. But however wonderful, that worship is not an end in itself. That's not why we come to church, is it? To enjoy just the fellowship, to meet with common cause as we sing God's praises, hear his word. Well, partly so. But that's not what the church principally is for. There's a danger here if we think that's what it is. John Stott was included by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential leaders of the 20th century. When he died in 2011, St. Paul's Cathedral was packed to the doors for his service of thanksgiving, and the Bishop of London, together with the Archbishops and of Canterbury and York, to start with, presided. Yet he was one of the most humble men I've ever met. And just before he died, he published his last book in which he listed the four great dangers which he wanted to warn the church about as he left us. And one of them was narcissism. A sense of self-satisfaction. A church more concerned with being an institution rather than a movement. A church more concerned with indrag rather than outreach. I've mentioned before those wonderful words of Pope Francis when he was saying that in his mind he sees Jesus banging on the door. But he's banging on the door in church wanting to be let out. Jesus says, therefore, go. If Easter really is the turning point of history, if Jesus has, been, if Jesus has authority over heaven and earth, then we must go and make him known. How can we do otherwise? The Archbishop of um, Canterbury in 1945 was that great man, William Temple. And he said in his book, which he published towards the end of his time, 
towards the conversion of England, it was called, which is a pretty good aim. He said, there will be no significant turning to God in this nation and uh, apart from the witness of every single Christian. That was 1945. We're still waiting. How can we do other than go for him? Jesus has revealed to us through his disciples who he is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has delegated the responsibility of telling the world to you and me. You say, what does that mean? How can I possibly do that? You don't understand where I'm at in my life. But I just ask you, what's your heart's desire? Is it to do what God asks? What is the driving force of all that I do? What is my hope? Is it just to go to heaven when I die? That's there, but yes, I'm not diminishing it. But is that all? Or is it to obey my Lord and Master? I want you to meet Hudson Taylor. He was born in 1832 into a humble family in Barnsley. And he went out as a missionary to Shanghai at the age of 21. Took him about six months to get there. During the next few years, he began to realize the enormity of the task of being a missionary in China. He was appalled by the apparent lack of commitment shown by other missionaries there, who were there partly, in some cases, because it was good from the English point of view to be there. So he returned to England to share the opportunities with the church here, but he was dismayed by what he found. There was a seminal moment when his life turned around. He found himself one Sunday morning in Brighton as part of a congregation of a thousand people. As the congregation rose to sing the last hymn, Taylor looked around. Row upon row of prosperous bearded merchants, shopkeepers, visitors, demure wives in bonnets and crinoline, scrubbed children trained to hide their impatience, recognize that, the atmosphere of smug piety sickened him. He seized his hat and left. He later wrote, <coughs> unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christians, rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out onto the beach alone in great spiritual agony. A million in China each month were dying, never having heard of Jesus. This burned into my very soul. His biographer dryly comments, Jesus loves it when we worship him, but he loves it even more when we obey. So at the age of 33, Hudson Taylor sailed back to China with 20 other like-minded young men who shared his passion to obey. Others followed and the China-England mission was born and as you will know from Gerald Charles, one of our mission partners, it is still flourishing today under the name of the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, the OMF. 
Today in China, there are over 90 million Christians, more than there are communists in China, more than the total membership of the party. And Hudson Taylor played a key part in all of that. He heard the call to go, and he went. In China today, there are too many, for a corrupt, uh, too many to, for Christians for a corrupt government to control in spite of its disdain for the rule of law. All they can do is remove the occasional pastor, as they've just done in uh, Chengzhou. And that's because the church is hugely respected for the love of Christ, which it shows to the poor and destitute, the orphans, the homeless, the disabled and handicapped. And it's there in businesses led by Christians who, which stand out for their integrity. You go to do business with them because you can trust them, and you don't seem to be able to trust them in many places else. But you say, look, Michael, for goodness sake, I can't go to China like Hudson Taylor. I haven't even got a pigtail like he had. Well, I know that feeling quite well. Um, but... Um, Jesus said, go. It's for everyone. What, me, a missionary, you say? Yep, you, a missionary. As the director of the OMF said recently, the only question about that is where you will be one. If we worship him, every one of us who professes to follow him must respond to his command. If he is king, we want to be his willing servants. How, you say? Well, okay, let's look at two ways to start with. To begin with, here in this church, we are blessed by being part of a church family which seeks to be a sending church. We have a flourishing church plant and nine mission partners, including Dear Faith and her work in Uganda. We clearly can't all literally go, but we can identify ourselves with those who do as members of the family here at Holy Trinity. Are we active in this or just passive? Do we just put something in the envelope when it appears in our seat once in a while and that's duty done? How can we put our weight behind what the church seeks to do? Well, one thing is we can make ourselves aware of what our mission partners need and share in their joys and trials. That's what families do, is it not? Some house groups have adopted a missionary and receive regular news and make them aware of their support and prayers. Even sending emails to them helps, although some of the missionaries we support tell us there's nothing like a letter sent by post to make them feel worthwhile. What about encouraging dear Faith there this, Sunday, this Saturday by coming to show tangible support for her and the wonderful work that she has set up there in Uganda? Wouldn't it be marvellous if everyone here turned up to supper on Saturday night? We have a very capable catering team, I know, and they would love to rise to the challenge. Or what about hearing about the plight of Christians in Burma and the Far East who are being persecuted? by coming to hear Ben Rogers on the 17th of April. And even better, why not come to both those saying, Lord, I've come to listen to what you have to say. Like Isaiah said, here am I, 
send me, tell me what to do. Secondly, we can give financially, and thank you so much for all you did last week as you responded to that Medair appeal. Did you take one of these? Did you read it? How has that, if you did, changed your life this week? That's what I mean about getting informed and getting involved. It's part of responding to the call to go. And lastly, and most importantly, we can commit to pray regularly for them, to inform our minds and ask God to move our hearts. All this we can and should engage in as part of obedience to Christ. That's as a church. As individuals, here's a checklist. Your mission field is where you are, yes? We can pray that God will open our eyes to what he wants us to do to make him known. Include every day in your prayer time a time to think of the people you might meet. Think of the issues they're facing. Is there a Christian view on the referendum that you might be discussing? Oh, goodness, you say. I can't do that. Well, here's some help. Um, Justin Welby, whom you may have heard of, uh, has come across a group of, a pressure group, which is set up in opposition to staying in the EU. They have claimed that that's what God wants them to do. They've claimed God's authority, and they've said, uh, we don't want to be part of a godless lot, we want to be separate. They need to open their eyes a bit nearer home, but that's, by the way. There's a group of Christians, and they've, they, they've called this pressure group, don't cringe, will you? They've called this pressure group, Believers. Sorry about that. Justin Welby felt sufficiently passionate about their claims, I can tell you that he disagreed with them, that he put on his Archbishop of Canterbury's website a brilliant article, not only saying they were mistaken to claim there's only one Christian view, but to show us that there are Christian values which should help us how to vote on June the 23rd, and he spells them out. Not everybody would agree with how that results, but you do need to know that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus and you're going to take that into every part of your life, it will also be into the voting booths on June the 23rd. And when I read in my paper that there is a significant number of people who will vote only on the basis of whom will make them at least 50 pounds better off, which way they go, in or out, then I think there's a need for Christians and all men and women of goodwill to engage in that debate. Let's be active in being salt and light in the world as Jesus told us to be. It's all part of going. Secondly, how else can you show God's love? As we worship and open our eyes, our eyes to the wonder of God's love each day, pray that he will fill you with his spirit. The Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let it be so. May there be nothing in your life which is unworthy of that temple. May his kingdom come. Here's another example. I was listening to the radio the other day and I heard dear Claire Balding, lovely, lovely girl, on a Radio 4 program, um, talking about rambling and good rambles. And she featured the good men of Eam Parish Church. I pricked up mine uh, years at that. I used to go there and know the vicar. As you know, Eam is the village famous for its godly reaction to the Great Plague. So with the enthusiastic support of their rock-climbing vicar, they lobbied the, pre beak, sorry, the Peak National Park 
to allow them to create a new pilgrim path across the Peak District, to allow them, uh, which would end at Eam Church. They've got permission to, to put up way markers along the way, along the Pilgrim Way. They have the symbol of a pair of boots on them with a little caption, this is the way, walk along it, which you, if you know your book of Isaiah, you would recognize. Who knows what could happen when they get to Eam Parish Church and see plastered along the walls the story of how the godly men and women of Eam in the Great Plague responded to the challenge and lived sacrificially so that others may live. And the great thing was Clare Building was full of enthusiasm and encouraged everybody to go on the pilgrimage. Thank you, Lord. Almost there. Next, in our place of work, if we are at work, or in gatherings of family or friends, in all your relationships, check that all your actions and standards reflect that God is Lord, the King of every part of your being. Nothing of which you may be ashamed. And lastly, prayerfully consider to whom you can invite to Holy Trinity next month for the guest events which are listed there in this week's prayer letter newsletter. And then, moving on quickly, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go, he said, make disciples, not just converts, disciples, and baptize them so they can make a public declaration of their newfound faith. And Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Quote that to the next Jehovah's Witness that knocks on your door. Jesus is quoting the Trinity and he is saying, we're part of that. We've been invited to worship and to go as part of the sending Trinity. We're part of his mission. Again, perhaps you'd just look at the back of the um, service, uh, the uh, service outline, sermon outline. In Romans 12, Paul suggests what this might mean. He says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, brothers and sisters, there's an act of intelligent worship, that you give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated by him, acceptable to him. Don't let the world around squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that God's plan for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Give him your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be squeezed into the mold of today's culture. Those of you who've been going through the um, celebration of discipline and have reached the chapter on um, simplicity will know how painful that can be. And when we live in an age, a powerful age of consumerism, materialism, showing your identity by what you wear and 
where, where you live. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Let God remold your minds from within. Don't, don't rely on just floating from one blessed spiritual experience to another. Engage your mind. Really know your Bible. Read books which will help you in your mission. And move towards the goal of true maturity. The Bible says, grow up into Christ in all things. It's a process which never ends until your dying day. So let's leave the doubters who try to be in two places at once. Let's go out from here 100% committed to Jesus' challenge to go, to make disciples, to teach them to obey. And lastly, he says, and remember. And this is the key to everything else. He says, remember, I am with you always even to the end of the age. As we worship, we give God the glory, but then we claim his strength to go on worshiping him in the cut and thrust of everyday life. Think of the city businessman who every, man, every day enters a temple of mammon, mammon in, the, in the city and says as he swings from the, through the doors, good morning, Lord, because he knows God is already there with him even in that temple of consumerism and mammon. He will always be there because he's promised. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray.